Hey everyone, welcome back to the Family Herbalism Podcast. My family is back from vacation and I am excited to share with you a special topic that I have chosen for this week. Actually, to tell you the truth, I had another plan entirely, but decided after some inspiration that this was an important topic that I knew we needed to talk about. So the reason that I chose this topic is because we're coming into an interesting season where normally we have concerns about uh, viruses that we're exposed to, the kids are going back to school, the winter season is coming, unfortunately, and so we, are, we know this is a normal thing we're going to have to face. But this year, we are also facing coming into the two-year cycle. Uh, we're in the, the end of the second year of facing COVID, and so this is another aspect that we're all considering and concerned about, especially as COVID continues to mutate, which viruses do and trying to know what we need to do about it. Um, Add to this the fact that we now have a lot of people who are experiencing long-haul COVID symptoms where they're continuing to be sick for weeks, months, or even longer after the illness is over, and we're still trying to figure out what is going on. Why are these people still continuing to be sick? We know that some people do experience... uh, interesting taste situations, their sense of scent changes, um, and but we're also having people who are developing chronic illnesses or pre-existing chronic illnesses are have this new factor to them where they're having more fatigue, they're having more pain, inflammation, uh, things that are not normally contracted or experienced with viruses. And we don't really know what's going on or we haven't really known what's going on with this. A lot of people have developed, a lot of herbalists have developed protocols that seem to be helping, um, but we've been addressing it as a COVID issue that may be connected to vitamin deficiencies or underlying stress or pre-existing health conditions conditions which might be involved. But the really interesting thing is that new reports are now being released of studies showing that the common factor may actually be a completely different virus, one that we actually have plenty of treatments available for. And so now that we are coming into the two-year mark of this virus, we've really had enough time now where we've been able to examine what is going on with this virus and the long-haul symptoms. So I was inspired to talk about this because Yes, this is definitely something I wanted to address, but it just so happened that toward the end of my family's vacation, I read an article that was written by Carly Casella at sciencealert.com. It was called, Long COVID Might Be the Manifestation of a Different Virus Reawakened in the Body. And that certainly piqued my interest. So when I opened it, she started talking about a virus that I have heard about before, and I have worked with clients who have had this virus, but I hadn't really stopped to think about how this might be connected to the chronic illnesses people are experiencing after they have um, after they have COVID. And so I read this and realized that she had a lot of different studies that were linked to in this article pointing to a potential answer for long-haul COVID, that this might actually explain why people are sick why they're not getting better, and that we can do something about it. 
because now we're not in unfamiliar territory. So I'm going to share with you a few of these studies, and then we're going to talk about this virus in particular and how it affects COVID and what we can do about it. So the first study was of 185 people who all tested positive for COVID in the U.S., and it showed that 73% of them, who, of those who had long-haul symptoms, also tested positive for Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV. Another study showed that 67% of long haulers tested positive for EBV, while only 10% of those without persistent COVID tested positive for EBV antibodies or reactivated EBV. What does this mean? It means that if you look at the long haulers, the people who are experiencing COVID for a long period of time, the majority of them were also experiencing Epstein-Barr virus, while those who got well shortly after having COVID were much, much less likely to be experiencing this Epstein-Barr virus at the same time. The same research team that tested this la- that did this last study also tested a second group of patients who had been recently sick with COVID. So they had just had it. They did not have enough, not, not enough time had passed for them to experience long haul symptoms, but they found similar rates of EBV reactivation, similar rates of antibodies in their blood cells. This suggested that the reinfection with Epstein-Barr actually occurs shortly after COVID-19 infection. A study in Wuhan earlier this year showed that within two weeks of testing positive for COVID, more than 50% had signs of EBV. So not necessarily the blood work that had been done, but actual physical signs. And they were also more likely to develop severe COVID if they had signs of EBV than those who did not. And finally, a study in Europe showed EBV positivity in 87% of the COVID patients tested. What does this all mean? Well, clearly these numbers do not represent all long haulers because even though it ranges from 50 to 87%, that means there's still a decent sized percentage of people that have long haul symptoms who are not testing positive for EBV. Does that mean that they don't have EBV? Not necessarily, but it does indicate to medical professionals that treatment of severe COVID symptoms may actually benefit from including antiviral treatment of the active second stage of Epstein-Barr virus, which we know as mono. It also means that those with long haul symptoms have a more clear direction for treatment and recovery. Now we know that we are likely to have a stronger treatment protocol by addressing it as an EBV infection. Those who do not have EBV will still likely benefit. So here's the thing. All viruses are treated pretty much in a very similar way. We support naturally, we support the body, support the immune system in fighting off viruses. So whether it is the COVID virus or the Epstein-Barr virus, we can support the immune system and know that it will have a positive effect on their body in fighting off whatever virus they have. But we do have specific herbs 
and medications that have worked have been researched and shown to be very effective against Epstein-Barr. And we know that there is no added risk of addressing long-haul symptoms as if they are Epstein-Barr, which is really good because there are a lot of people out there who are experiencing these long-haul symptoms, but they're not severe enough to be monitored closely by their healthcare professionals. They may even be doing it on their own at home. And to know that they have a very clear option, a natural direction to go to treat these things is really encouraging. It means that we're, we are not just facing these new, unusual symptoms at, with an unknown cause because COVID is new to us. It means we're dealing with something that is very familiar. Epstein-Barr has been around, uh, it has been recognized since the 60s. And evidence and research around it has been growing ever since, especially in the past decade, and we're becoming a lot more familiar with it. So what is Epstein-Barr virus exactly? Well, I'm going to sit here for a little bit and talk about why this is popping up for COVID and what this virus is exactly and what precautions we can take to prevent a reactivation or to handle it naturally if it does happen. But I do want to point out the fact that most people are eventually, most likely, going to contract COVID. It's a virus, and it's mutating like viruses do, and it's not likely to disappear with or without a vaccine. It is just part of life. It's anytime a new virus comes up, anytime a new virus develops where we're exposed to it, Our bodies have to learn how to fight against it, and each time that we face it, our immune systems get stronger, and eventually it becomes not a big deal. The flu today is not a huge deal for most people, but it used to be absolutely terrible. And so the same thing is happening with COVID, but in the meantime, we have to know how to handle it and what to do when these symptoms continue for weeks or months afterwards. Knowing what our options are and how to handle this situation means also that we don't have to worry about it as much. It takes a lot of power out of the virus. When we are stressed, we are going to have difficulty fighting off any virus because our immune system cannot focus on the virus when our adrenal glands are pumping out cortisol and adrenaline like we have to fight a different enemy. I did teach a class in my Facebook group on COVID. It is still available if you're part of the group. Uh, Even though it's not active anymore, you can go back through the videos and find the class on COVID. At some point in time, I will probably create a podcast about it. But for today, I'm just going to be talking about what is happening with the vast majority of those with long haul symptoms. So back to Epstein-Barr virus. This is a type of herpes virus. It is the same viral family that causes cold sores, chickenpox, and genital herpes. It is spread through bodily fluids, and in its active phase, it is detectable in the blood and produces symptoms that we know as mono, or the kissing disease. These symptoms include fever, fatigue, inflamed throat, swollen lymph nodes in the neck, muscle aches, swollen tonsils, headaches, and large liver and spleen, and a full-body rash. The younger the person who becomes infected, the less severe the symptoms, just like in chickenpox, and oftentimes it goes completely undetected. 
So a person may have EBV and never know it. It is one of the most common viruses affecting humans, and it is widely held that over 90% of the world has contracted EBV at some point in their lives, though they may not develop symptoms for weeks after exposure. There are over 60 known strains of EBV, which can react very differently in different people, but they all go through the same four stages, which I'll talk about in a minute. There are some antiviral drugs available to treat mono, but most often when a person contracts it, they are recommended to stay home and to get lots of rest, drink lots of water, and basically take care of themselves as if they had the flu because the virus is largely unresponsive to drugs that are available. For most people, it does go away within a couple of weeks like any other common virus, and they have no complications. There are some complications that can occur, but we're not going to go there. What we're really looking at is what's happening with the reactivation phase. Once a person contracts Epstein-Barr virus, it remains dormant in the cells. This is similar to the way that the bacteria Borrelia does in Lyme disease, where the body and the pathogen learn to cohabitate without symptoms. A person who has it may never have symptoms, or they may have mono and then never be troubled by it again, but sometimes it does reactivate. And things like major stress, life-changing events, a weakened immune system from a new virus, or hormonal changes can cause this to happen. For example, in a woman's case, starting her period for the first time, experiencing childbirth, or menopause are three examples of situations where this hormonal, these hormonal changes can trigger EBV to be reactivated for them. Of the four stages, the first, like I said, is when they contract it by another infected person and it enters a latent stage. And what it's doing is it's replicating itself and waiting for the perfect time to do battle with the immune system. Once the body, once the virus, excuse me, recognizes that the immune system is weak enough or the conditions have become perfect, then the active or symptomatic stage begins where the person develops mono. And they, again, it might be mild enough that they think they just have a cold, but usually there is some type of at least mild symptoms that indicates that this has now, this virus has now entered its second stage. After that infection is done, and they are no longer symptomatic, which can take a couple of weeks or a a few months sometimes, it enters a dormancy phase. And again, this is very similar to Lyme disease, where the bacteria goes into hiding. In this case, it's a virus, and it moves into the liver, the spleen, and the thyroid and becomes undetectable. And usually, there are no symptoms. So if a person was tested, they would test negative. They no longer have this virus when in actuality, they do. And there are some uh, blood tests that can uh, care, you know, they can use to um, detect antibodies, but they are more difficult to access and they're not always accurate. So it goes into dormancy. But for some people, this virus enters a fourth chronic stage in which they become symptomatic And this is when the virus has now managed to uh, 
it out to outlive its its uh, welcome and basically the body becomes exhausted trying to manage the virus and the body develops symptoms in its effort to control it. Many of these symptoms actually involve the nervous system and this is true with any kind of chronic illness that's caused by a virus or bacteria. Once the body becomes exhausted, the nervous system starts to break down and that's why we see a lot of the symptoms there. The fourth stage generally develops after another major event or illness that is essentially the straw that broke the camel's back. The virus detects that hormones are being released that are indicating the body is stressed out, such as that hormonal change, the major life event, another illness, whatever. The virus detects that that the body is stressed out and that the, the nerves are under attack already. And so the virus rushes out from hiding to attack, which causes additional symptoms. But because the, the testing is difficult, uh, you know, the accuracy is not very good, the, the um, symptoms can continue on, but they don't necessarily have an explanation. So that means that a person can be having extreme fatigue from this virus, for example, But every time they test the person's blood, it comes back normal and the doctor says, well, it says there's nothing wrong with you. And then that leaves them in this really difficult stage of trying to figure out, well, what is causing my symptoms? How do I fix it? Am I just making it all up? Like, why is this happening to me? Reactivation is the term that is used to describe the fourth stage because the first active form is when they have the symptomatic monophase where it is detectable in the blood. So it reactivates in the fourth stage. And at this point, symptoms can appear to be caused by or somehow connected to many other conditions. So these conditions can be pre-existing, or it may be that EBV is somehow implicated in triggering the onset of these, or it may be that they are misdiagnosed. But these illnesses include These illnesses are actually many and include chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, lupus, irritable bowel disease, type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, multiple sclerosis, Lyme disease, Julian-Barr syndrome, adrenal fatigue, rheumatoid arthritis, menopause symptoms, and EBV has also been connected to some cancer types, though this is believed to be rare. I think the reason why it can be confusing to determine whether these symptoms are due to a pre-existing condition or due to a new chronic illness or caused by EBV or long-haul symptoms is because many of them are diagnosed by ruling out other conditions and the symptoms, which are many, can be quite varied and overlap between symptom, between syndromes and illnesses. These symptoms can include things like muscle and joint pain, painful and tender joints, back pain, stinging, tingling and or numbness of hands and feet, migraines, constant fatigue, dizziness, blurred vision, insomnia, restless sleep, night sweats, tinnitus, vertigo and Meniere's disease, anxiety, chest pain, chest tightness, esophageal spasms, and heart palpitations. So you can see that the symptoms are quite varied, but they also overlap. So you can have a lot of these conditions caused by the same symptoms, and that's why I think that it's very difficult to determine 
which chronic illness you're actually dealing with and why EBV is often not included as a potential explanation. And yet now these blood tests are confirming to us that it is a strong possibility uh, that it's actually the reason why we're experiencing these things after COVID. It all just kind of fits together like a puzzle. And this is the other reason why I wanted to talk about EBV today because it's becoming more understood as a significant factor in many chronic conditions that people are battling today. Whether or not they have COVID, it seems that Epstein-Barr, and there is growing evidence of this, that it's actually triggering or somehow implicated in chronic conditions developing. By supporting the immune system and getting a handle on EBV, symptoms seemingly connected to completely different conditions can become manageable or even obsolete. And I have seen this in some of my own clients. I will say that this is something that I am still learning about, uh, something that I'm still developing protocols around. And so I know that it is an area I need to continue learning in. And I think that really the the um, world of natural health needs to continue growing in this as well, all the practitioners, because it's something that we're still having difficulty being able to correctly identify with the blood tests that are available and with the natural treatments that are available. No one knows exactly why these conditions, if correctly diagnosed, are more common among those who have EBV antibodies, but there are a lot of theories One is that the body recognizes similar proteins in both the virus and the body and attacks the body unintentionally. This is how autoimmune conditions happen. Uh, Another theory is that the immune system accidentally attacks the body's cells along with the virus. So a story of the cells being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Another is that the toxins released by EBV, either as it's replicating or as it's being killed off, can cause symptoms. And it's also possible that a long-term chronic infection can cause the immune system to simply not function adequately or correctly because it's exhausted, such as the liver not being able to properly detox the body of EBV toxins or the gut being damaged. So remember that the immune system is largely in the gut. And so what happens is the cellular tissue in the gut can become damaged. It becomes thinned out. The cells actually begin to separate and there are spaces between them and food and toxins that are supposed to be eliminated are then backed up into the bloodstream and detected by the immune system as a stranger that doesn't belong there and then from then on recognizes those food things or toxins as the enemy and you create an allergy. This this aspect is called leaky gut syndrome, and it's actually very common and often implicated in chronic health conditions. And it's important here because a lot of people who have Epstein-Barr virus, especially when it's reactivated, do have gut damage that they're, they're, they're needing to work on. And of course, being improperly nourished, stressed out or lacking sleep can also trigger EBV reactivation as well as being implicated in many other chronic conditions. The good news is there are a lot of options for naturally supporting your immune system, whether this is a young person in your family, whether it's yourself or an elderly loved one. All the standard immune support precautions, of course, apply here. So we talked about nutrition. You want to focus on eating organic, fresh fruits and vegetables. They should make up at least half of your diet while you're fighting an active infection. 
You should be limiting processed foods, definitely avoiding sugar, drinking plenty of water, and if you have gut issues going on, eating or taking a supplement of probiotics and prebiotics is really important. Most people are deficient in vitamins, so taking a multivitamin would be appropriate. And if you're fighting anything to do with, you know, germs, with viruses and bacteria, taking extra vitamin C, D, zinc, and selenium will also, selenium, excuse me, will also be really important. But there are other things too, like making sure you get plenty of rest. And if you're not sleeping well at night, addressing that as a major issue. Spending time outside is good for your immune system. It's good for your emotional health. It helps to build resilience to any kind of offender. There are a lot of really great reasons to be spending time outside. Getting fresh oxygen in your lungs helps you to detox. So many good things. Um, and also, when I, when I work with someone who's fighting an illness, I always recommend lymphatic work. So this either looks like gentle uh, massage of the skin where the lymphatic tissues, um, the passages, and the nodes are literally right underneath the skin. So light massage from toes to groin or from fingertips to the armpits will help to flush out toxins or junk that is stagnant in the lymphatic system. And that will help to speed up the recovery time of any illness. So each of these things is important regardless of what type of condition that you're dealing with. But there are a number of potential options specifically for Epstein-Barr virus that have been researched. One of the most interesting therapies that I've been learning about involves ozone. And the specific type of treatment that's being researched for Epstein-Barr is called blood ozone therapy, where the practitioner extracts a sample of blood from the person, treats the blood with ozone, and then re-injects it back into the body again. And so what's happening here is the ozone has three oxygen molecules which means that there is an extra oxygen molecule available. And so this is going to attract free radicals, which viruses put off. So every time, anytime that a virus or a bacteria is killed off, it releases free radicals and blood ozone therapy can attract those extra free radicals and basically contain them and allow them to be detoxed from the body so that they don't cause negative, uh, you know, problematic symptoms in the body. Another option that's available is supplementing with lysine, which is an amino acid, a building block of protein that helps the body to create more antibodies. And another one is loracidin uh, brand monolaurin. So monolaurin is a fatty acid that we are familiar with because we hear it talked about a lot in regards to coconut oil. And some people do like to take coconut oil every day, you know, adding spoonfuls into their coffee or baking with it. And while that is helpful, this particular brand, loracidin brand, is 100% monolaurin, whereas a lot of supplements contain added ingredients, which may or may not be good. And so you, some people are finding that by adding a couple scoops of this monolaurin a day into their food supports healthy, a healthy immune system and gut support especially. So if you are dealing with IBD or leaky gut or other uh, digestive system symptoms, 
adding in monolaurin can help to heal that, uh, you know, food sensitivity and uh, make things a little bit easier there. During an active infection, also it will be important to protect the body from injury because if the spleen is swollen, it is much more prone to accidents, more prone to injury. And so things like straining to have a bowel movement or activities where there is a greater risk for impact to the stomach put the spleen at risk. So my, my daughter Daphne, who has uh, MCAS, mast cell activation syndrome, does often experience spleen swelling with some of her flares. And it can be uncomfortable, but it should not be overwhelmingly painful. So if it becomes overwhelmingly painful, you should speak to your care provider to make sure that you're not having, having a situation where it's rupturing or something else very serious. So it does pass, but in the meantime, you want to make sure that the person, you or the other person, are not at risk of injuring the spleen. So that's a short-term thing. So we've talked about blood ozone therapy, lysine, loracidin, monolaurin, and protecting the spleen. Now, herbally, there are a lot of other options. And honestly, the list for immune support herbs goes on and on and on and on. If you are experiencing EBV, Honestly, the first thing I would do is have you look in your cabinet because if you have any herbal supplies on hand, chances are there's something in there that will support your immune system and there's no need to go out and buy new things. And you can also work with a lot of culinary herbs that you might have, spices that you might have, things like garlic and cayenne, thyme. Uh, oregano. These are all things that we commonly work with for food, but are actually really great for your immune system. So if you have them, definitely take advantage of them. But there are some that have been researched specifically around Epstein-Barr virus. And so we'll talk about those and a few of my other favorites added in for lymphatic support and liver and spleen health and that sort of thing. And so I've narrowed it down to my top 10. The first one is astragalus. Astragalus is often recommended for preventing illness. It is safe for all ages. It's especially recommended for those who are elderly because there are a lot of herbs that elderly folks cannot take, and astragalus is safe. The one caution that I would say is that it is better as a preventative than as a remedy for someone who has an active infection. Uh, I once heard it described as being like the archers on the wall around a castle, that they will focus on on preventing attack from, from the uh, invaders, right? And they will shoot off the invaders and kill them off, whatever. But if the invaders end up getting inside, then the archers get all confused and end up trying, they end up trying to shoot the invaders, but they end up shooting themselves. And so they end up with a very difficult situation that is harder to handle. And so the idea is that astragalus is really, really great for preventing infection. But once you are sick, you should stop taking it until the infection has passed. And the general recommendation is if you're working with the tincture, which is the best form to use it in, to take 20 to 30 drops daily. Echinacea is number two. Echinacea has been, there are so, so many studies around echinacea and its effectiveness. It's definitely uh, proven to be valuable. Uh, it is safe to take as an immune support preventative and also to treat active infections. You can take 
excuse me, you can take it in capsule form, 300 to 500 milligrams up to three times daily. You can also make it into a tea and take a couple sips an hour if you're sick. You can also take it in tincture form, 20 to 30 drops daily. If you have an active infection, I would drop it down to about five drops and take take it every hour or two while you're awake, uh, or one to three droppers during the fourth stage of EBV, because you're going to need smaller, more frequent doses to keep it in the bloodstream and keep the body uh, you know, building up those white blood cells. And that's what echinacea does, is it really stimulates the production of white blood cells. The third one is cat's claw root. I use cat's claw as a primary part of my Lyme disease protocol, and it also is really great for arthritis or anywhere where there's inflammation, especially around the joints. And that is implicated in a lot of uh, chronic health conditions where EBV has been involved. But it's also antiviral, and it has been studied specifically for Epstein-Barr virus and has been found effective in treating it. So the general recommendation is 20 to 30 drops daily. If you are in an active infection, I would take closer to five drops every couple of hours to really boost your immune system. Number four is licorice root. Licorice root has actually been found to lower the replication rate of Epstein-Barr virus. So when you're taking it, it has a harder time reproducing itself. You can take it in uh, capsules, again, 150 to 300 milligrams daily. But if you're going to use it for a long period of time, I would suggest getting deglycerizinated or DGL licorice because there are some long-term side effects that have been associated with using licorice. Next comes lemon balm. Lemon balm is one of my favorite herbs because it is super gentle. It is safe for all ages. Even babies can take it. And the only known potential side effect, which has been questioned, is using it for people who have hypothyroidism. It is antiviral and it has been shown to kill all herpes viruses and it strengthens the immune system. This lemon balm is wonderful for people who have chicken pox specifically or shingles. And so I, I really like it for this condition because they are connected. It's wonderful in tea or tincture. You can use it how you like. Elderberry is another commonly used herb for immune support. It is antiviral and immune supportive. Uh, In studies, it has been found to deactivate viruses. It literally injures them, the viral cells, so that they cannot travel effectively. And so a common way of taking it is in a syrup. You would take about a tablespoon a day, or you could take a, a tiny bit more frequently through the day if you're dealing with an active infection. But it's also lovely in a tea, and you can take it in tincture. There are all different kinds of ways to work with elderberry. The recipes are endless. Olive leaf, which is an herb that I actually do not have any experience working with directly, but it has been researched around EBV. It does destroy viruses, and it interferes with their ability to communicate and thus makes it more difficult for them to replicate. So it has been highly recommended for EBV, and this I would leave you with. Red clover. Red clover isn't necessarily 
specifically antiviral, although it is very useful in viral conditions. And it actually has been implicated in cleansing the lymphatic system, the liver and spleen of EBV related toxins. So one of my favorite ways to work with red clover is if someone knows that they have lymphatic congestion, so your lymph nodes are swollen or there is edema or other symptoms that are connected to a bogged down lymphatic system. And it works really well at clearing everything out and moving, getting things, getting fluids moving again. But the research around it has been interesting because it's been showing that it specifically eliminates the toxins that are released by EBV. Cilantro is number eight. It removes heavy metals. Why would I include that on this list? Well, it turns out that Epstein-Barr virus actually feeds off of heavy metals. Now we do need a little bit of some metals in our bodies. It's actually really important for healthy blood, healthy tissues, but too much is not enough. And sometimes we're exposed to heavy metals, whether through cookware or through our drinking water or through vaccines and many other places, and it, they stay in our body. They're difficult to move. And cilantro is, along with my next herb that I'll mention, is really good at attracting heavy metals and absorbing it and then allowing it to be flushed out of the system. So in this case, I would suggest five to 10 drops of the cilantro tincture one to three times a day. Number nine is another heavy metal uh, remover, which is parsley. And not only does it help to remove heavy metals, but it also supports the body's willpower to fight pathogens. Parsley has specifically been researched by a number of herbalists around COVID. And for some reason, some people who experience COVID, like really, really severe symptoms, they it is being reported that many of them are experiencing this pivotal moment in their illness where they have to decide whether they're going to fight the virus or not, where they have to decide if they're going to continue striving or if they're going to give up. And it sounds a little bit morbid, but for some reason, this seems to be happening for some people. And it's being reported also by uh, a number of first responders. And herbalists have known that parsley is able to strengthen that willpower and enable a person to recognize that, no, they actually want to live and they actually want to fight the virus. So it's helpful here, not just for removing heavy metals, but also supporting a person in deciding that it's time to be done being sick. And so parsley can be added into foods. Some people suggest making smoothies with parsley or juicing it. You can also make it into a tea, take it as a tincture, and you can also find some really good recipes for parsley wine, which you would only need to take, you know, a couple sips of here and there, but there are really great ways to work with parsley. And finally, this one is a double whammy, milk thistle seed or dandelion. <laughs> so you can use both, but either one will support a healthy liver and they are safe for most people. Milk thistle actually helps to regenerate liver tissue. So if you've been fighting a chronic illness for a long time, milk thistle would be very appropriate. Dandelion is very cleansing. It is supportive to eliminating toxins from the body, uh, to, the, to the liver, to the gallbladder, to the spleen, all of that, the lymphatic system. 
kidneys really great. You can work with it, work with dandelion as food. Uh, the milk thistle seed, you know, you could add that into smoothies if you wanted to. You can take either one in capsule form, drink them as teas, or take them as tinctures. So those are 10 different herbs that you can work with on top of a number of uh, other natural options that we talked about in general immune support care. So these are things that you can use to handle both long-term COVID and also deal with Epstein-Barr virus. And I, my suggestion is always start with one thing, add it into your regimen, your daily regimen, be consistent with it, and then continue to add options until you feel like you are making progress. If you do feel like you're getting stuck and you would like some assistance, feel free to reach out for a consultation. You can learn more about my services at www.laureltreewellnessllc.com. And in the meantime, I will begin making preparations for the podcast episode that I actually intended to make for this week, which is all about Lyme disease. So that's coming up next. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.